The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 15 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC15. This is Secret Church 15, Episode 3. What then does the gospel have to do with all these cultural issues? And my contention is that the gospel has everything to do with all these cultural issues. That if you believe the gospel, it radically changes the way you think about abortion and orphans and widows and poverty and slavery and sexuality and ethnicity, immigration, liberty, persecution. People look at this list and they think these are social issues or political issues. But what I want to show you tonight is that before these are social or political issues, these are God issues. These are gospel issues that... In the sense that we view them through our understanding of who God is, who we are, what we must do in response to who Christ is and why he's unique, why all of this is important, not just on this earth, but for all of eternity. So I think we have a tendency to miss this. Take an issue like abortion, and I'll be the first to say that for years, not just as a a Christian, but as a pastor, I was shamefully silent about this issue. I relegated it over here to a political issue, and for that matter, an issue for far-right politicians. But then one day, I remember distinctly reading Psalm 78, and I saw a mention of the children yet unborn. And that took me to Psalm 139, which we're going to look at in a minute. And I realized that if I believe the Bible, then moral or political neutrality on the issue of abortion is not an option. Now, I mentioned earlier that all these different issues are sensitive, and I know there are women listening right now who have had abortions. And I'm not going to presume to know what is in your mind or your heart as we address this issue. Abortion has been called by many a secret killer, not only of babies, but of moms whose abortions leave deep wounds and difficult scars. So I want to be sensitive, as sensitive as I can to you, if that's you, to your heart. I want you to know that we're going to look at stark truth from Scripture about abortion. We're going to see the sinful nature of abortion according to the Word because I want to show every single person tonight who's ever thought about having an abortion or is thinking about having an abortion or who ever think about having an abortion, I pray that you will have the Word lodged so deeply in your heart that abortion won't even cross your mind as a possibility again. And this is, this is a word not just for childbearing women, who are involved in secret church, but for all of us in the church, for the people of God, we need to see what God's word says about abortion, to see the severity with which scripture addresses it so that we can think and speak biblically about it and stand boldly against it. So I want to be clear and I want to be compassionate at the same time to the countless women and men who've been affected by abortion. And more than anything, I want you to see, hear, feel the love of God in the gospel, even when it comes to this issue. So, Let's start with thinking about abortion and God. Primary text, Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16. Follow along with me. Let's read, read this passage. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So that text, three truths just springing from it that are reinforced all over scripture. Number one, abortion is an affront to God's sovereign authority as creator. 
You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. As we saw in the gospel, God is the creator of all. Isaiah 40, he's the giver of life. God is a man and woman can come together in an attempt to produce life, but only God can make that happen. Only God. He's the giver of life and he is the taker of life. It's God's prerogative, God's authority alone to give and to take life. But abortion says that we're in control of life, that we decide when someone lives or when someone dies. It's not true. God is the creator of all who makes that call. Abortion is an affront, an offense to God's authority as the one who gives and takes life. Second, abortion is an assault on God's glorious work in creation. So I love Psalm 139 right after David confesses God's, God's work in creation. He says, you form my inner parts. You knit me together. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. So think about it. The way God creates people compels praise. David says, the way you form me, the way you knit me together, it evokes awe and amazement and worship. And it does, doesn't it? I mean, David writes that in Psalm 139, but he didn't even know what we know now. How God takes a little egg and sperm and brings them together. How within two weeks, a human heart is beating, circulating its own blood. Within a few more weeks, fingers are forming on hands. Brain waves are detectable. After six and a half weeks, these inward parts are moving. Two weeks later, they have discernible fingerprints. There's discernible sexuality. Kidneys forming and functioning. Then a gallbladder. By the 12th week, all the organs of a baby's body are functional and the baby can cry. All within three months, first trimester, Heart, organs, brain, sexuality, movement, reaction, God on high doing every single bit of that. It evokes awe, amazement, praise, worship. So imagine then at that moment, during that time period, inserting a tool, taking a pill, undergoing an operation that takes the life that God is designing and destroys it. Without question, an assault on God's glorious work in creation. There's no way around this. Most abortions take place between 10 and 14 weeks of gestation. What they say is the optimal time for dismemberment and removal. And the beauty of what God is doing, the intricacy of the person God is forming is ripped apart. And, and this in large part, is the crux of the whole discussion concerning abortion. What, what's happening in the womb? And the Bible's clear. The womb contains a person formed in the image of God. According to Psalm 139, other texts in Scripture like Genesis 1, 26-28, God's forming a person in his image, unlike any other part of his creation. He's knitting together a human being. Now, people have argued and will argue what full personhood is. So when does an embryo or a fetus become a person and I'm convinced this is the most important question. Virtually every argument in the abortion controversy comes back to this one question. What or who is the unborn? What or who is in the womb? Because once that question's answered, every other question comes into perspective. Think about it. If the unborn is not human, then no justification for abortion is necessary. So some say the unborn isn't a human person. It's just a non-viable tissue mass merely part of a woman's body. Others say it's a potential human or a human that's not yet a person, whatever that means. The reality is, if that's true, the argument's over. Have the, have the abortion. No justification for abortion would be necessary. On the other hand, if the unborn is human, then no justification for abortion is adequate. This is where I'm indebted to Gregory Kugel, who wrote a great little booklet called Precious Unborn Human Person. And there's, there's recommended resources in the back of your study guide. People say abortion is such a complex issue. There's just no easy answers. But if that which is in the womb is a person, then this issue is not complex at all. Think about it. If it's true that what's in the womb is a person, then every single justification for abortion falls apart. People say, but women have a right to privacy with their doctors. 
And certainly we all have a right to a measure of privacy, but no privacy argument is a cover for doing serious harm to another innocent human being. We have laws that invade our privacy all the time when we start harming another person's welfare. Privacy, not the issue here, but making abortions illegal forces women into back alleys with coat hangers to do abortions themselves there. So then are we saying that if it's dangerous to kill a person, we should make it easier for them? If it is dangerous to rob a bank, do we make it convenient for bank robbers? More children will create a drain on the economy. So when human beings get expensive, shall we kill them? Women should have the freedom to choose. Some things, sure, but not all things. Yes, we have the children have the, the, the freedom to choose whether to have children or not. We don't have the freedom to simply eliminate toddlers or teenagers if they're inconvenient to us. No one has the freedom to kill a child if it's a child, right? Google mentions a little girl named Rachel, daughter of family friends of his. Listen to this. Think of a little girl named Rachel. She's two months old. She's still six weeks away from being a full-term baby. She was born prematurely at 24 weeks in the middle of her mother's second trimester. On the day of her birth, Rachel weighed one pound, nine ounces, but dropped to just under a pound soon after. She was so small she could rest on the palm of her daddy's hand. She was a tiny living human person. Heroic measures were taken to save this child's life. Why? Because we have an obligation to protect, nurture, and care for other humans who would die without our help, especially little children. Rachel was a vulnerable and valuable human being. But get this, if a doctor came into the hospital room and instead of caring for Rachel, took the life of this little girl as she lay quietly nursing at her mother's breast, it would be homicide. However, if the same little girl, the very same Rachel, was inches away resting inside her mother's womb, she could be legally killed by abortion. That makes no sense. It's utterly ludicrous if this is a person, if this is a child in the womb. Every, everything revolves around what's happening in the womb. And God's word is crystal clear. The womb contains a person being formed in the image of God. You cannot believe God's word and deny that. And once that is realized, there is absolutely no adequate justification for abortion. One of the wonderful things that Psalm 139 does is it gives us a glimpse into what God sees and what God's doing in the womb. And when we read it, we realize though the unborn is visibly hidden from man, he or she is never hidden from God. He's seeing, he's working, he's forming, he's knitting, he's creating, he's nurturing, he's shaping and crafting in a way that evokes awe and praise. And abortion is an assault on that work of God. The way God creates people compels praise. And all of God's works are wonderful. Psalm 139, 14, all your works are wonderful. And this is key because much of the contemporary defense for abortion involves denying or assaulting that reality. Abortions here and around the world happen because childbearing is seen as inconvenient. It's costly, too much for a woman in a certain situation to handle, inadvisable for a woman in a certain situation to undertake with the advancement of medical technology, whether it's the ability to detect sexuality, which is huge in some countries like China where there's a one-child policy, so it's advantageous to have a boy so girls are aborted. Or India, where it's more expensive to have a girl. You lose money on dowry, so girls are aborted. Sexuality can be determined. Disability, it's possible to determine whether or not a baby in a womb has Down syndrome or some particular disease that will affect their life. So should abortion be permissible in these circumstances? Not if you believe Psalm 139, 14. Not if you believe all of God's works are wonderful. Because when you believe this, when you know this, and you know that God's work is wonderful, even or especially in the case of disability, this is all over scripture. John 9, man born blind. Crowds ask, whose fault is that? Jesus says, this is not his or his parents' fault. This happens so that the wonderful works of God might be revealed to and through him. God did this so that one day this man could see and declare and delight in his glory. 
Now, here's the deal. I don't presume in any way to know all the difficulties that are involved with disabilities. A few years ago, Heather and I ventured into a journey to adopt uh, special needs uh, through a special needs program in China, and our eyes were open to all the orphans who have disabilities in the world. Yet to think of the many children, in large part because of their disabilities, who were never even born into the world, were murdered before then. One article on ABC News from a pediatric geneticist at Children's Hospital in Boston said an estimated 92% of all women who receive a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome choose to terminate their pregnancies. 92%. We deny the wonderful work of God, even especially in disability, God has a design and a desire to use everything for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And it is wrong to play God in any situation by saying, I know what is better than you. God's wonder, works are wonderful, even especially in the case of disability and even especially in the midst of difficulty. God delights in taking difficult circumstances, even evil circumstances, and turning them into good. Genesis 50, 20. He takes all things, even what seem to be tragic things, and works them together for good. This is who God is, Romans 8, 28. Now, at this point, some people ask, what about cases of incest or rape? Is abortion justifiable then? And again, I cannot presume to know what it's like to be in that situation. I shudder at the thought of this and my wife or any other woman for that matter. And I will not in any way presume to know the physical, emotional toll that brings, not just upon a woman, but a family. But come back to the fundamental question. Is the baby in the womb a person? And if so, it changes everything. Would you murder a child who's out of the room because they were conceived by rape? Of course you wouldn't. And why would you murder a child in the womb because they were conceived by rape? Why should a child pay for his father's crime? Deuteronomy 24, 16. Yeah. How do we treat an innocent child who reminds us of a terrible experience with love and mercy? People say, well, what about the emotional toll on a woman? And again, I don't want to treat that lightly in any way, but just think about it. If the rapist were caught, would we allow the woman to murder the rapist in order to have emotional relief? No. Then why would we allow her to murder her innocent child in order to have emotional relief? I'm not not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is easy at all. But I am saying this because Scripture's saying this. God has a record of taking the most evil, painful, horrible circumstances and turning them into joy and good and life. He took Joseph's brother's attempt to murder him and turned it into saving an entire people. He took incest. Look at Genesis 38, Matthew chapter 1. He says incest between Judah and Tamar. Then you look at the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1, and you see that incest was way back in the family line in light of the Son of God. And oh, isn't this the message of the gospel? God takes unimaginable evil and turns it into ultimate good. God takes the murder of his son and turns it into the means of our salvation. We can trust this God. You can trust this God. You can trust this God. Third truth concerning God and abortion. Abortion is an attack on God's intimate relationship with the unborn. Hear the intimacy, my frame not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven, your eyes saw my unformed substance. You formed my days for me before one of them came to be. God is not relating to an embryo there, but to a person. His relationship with that person from conception, from the forming of inward parts is astoundingly intimate. Listen to how scripture describes God's relationship with the unborn. He fashions them, Job 31. He values them, Exodus 21. 
He knows them, Jeremiah 1.5. He relates to them, Psalm 22. He calls them, Galatians 1.15. He names them, Isaiah 49. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He anoints them, John, Luke 1 and Luke uh, 15 and verse 44, talking about John the Baptist. You see the intimacy here that God has with a baby in the womb. And in the process, do you see then how serious abortion is? See it. Abortion is not primarily a social issue, political issue, women's issue, children's issue, health issue. Yes, it's all those things, but before that, it's a God issue. It's an affront to God's character, an assault on God's work, an attack on God's, God's relationship with precious babies that he's creating. And as a result, abortion is a gospel issue. So how does God respond to all this? We've seen what we have done to God, how in abortion we offend God's character, debase God's work. So What does God do in response to abortion? Two things I want to point out that we saw in the gospel. One, God is the judge of sin. He is a righteous judge, Genesis 18, Romans 2. And as a righteous judge, a good judge, God hates the taking of innocent life and he judges all who take innocent life, which means mothers who have aborted babies stand under the judgment of God. Fathers and friends who have encouraged abortion stand under the judgment of God. Grandparents and others who have supported abortion stand under the judgment of God. Doctors who have performed abortion stand under the judgment of God. Leaders who have permitted abortion stand under the judgment of God. This includes pastors who have counseled people to have abortions. And side note here, the only time medical action like we're talking about here would be justified is in a case where obviously a woman's pregnancy would, would kill her, like tubal pregnancies. Obviously, it's better for one human to live, a mother, than for two humans to die, a mother and her child. So the intent there is obviously not to kill a child, but to physically save a life. And the tragic, unavoidable result is the death of that child. So obviously, I I think that's a given. I just want to make sure it's out there. But apart from that, no biblical warrant exists for pastors to counsel people to have abortions. So leaders, including pastors and legislators and others who've worked to make abortion possible, which includes the current president of the United States, whom I respect and pray for, but who has proactively and is proactively, aggressively working to keep the murder of innocent children legal. And we're going to talk about the role of government more specifically when we get to religious liberty. But for now, I just want to draw your attention to Romans 13 there, where Paul in the New Testament addresses the role of civil authorities, our responsibility to civil authorities. The Bible teaches very clearly that government is given by God for the good of people. Government exists under the authority of God, instituted by God to be a terror to bad conduct. So those who do what is good are approved by the government. That's God's design. So the primary purpose of government and the design of God is to protect and promote the good of its people. The government does that. I'm making and enforcing laws, which leads to the second part there in your guide. The government is given by God for the legislation of morality. Government is given by God to affirm the good and condemn the bad. That's what Romans 13.3 is all about, to ensure justice, to promote good for people. That's foundational. Yet many people say it's not the state's job, it's not the job of government to legislate morality, but that's a sham argument and we all know it. The state does have the responsibility of legislating morality, saying that stealing is wrong, lying is wrong, murder is wrong, a host of other things are wrong. And when it comes to the issue of abortion, people immediately say, well, we shouldn't take someone's right to choose away. But the government exists to take people's right to choose away. You can't choose to steal. If you do, there will be consequences. You can't choose to do a whole host of things for which there are laws against. And this is good that government says these things. If everyone chose to do whatever they wanted to do, the inevitable result would be anarchy, where we'd all be free to do whatever we want. It's not good. Yet it's the basis by which many, even many in the church are saying, well, maybe I wouldn't have an abortion 
But I don't think we should take someone else's right to choose away from them. We take people's right to choose away from them every day as a society. And that is really good for all of us. It's good for us to say no one has the right to do evil. And it's absolute moral silliness, cultural suicide to say that everyone should have a right to do whatever they choose to do. So this is where I want to call you, Christian, out of a muddled middle road that says, well, I think we shouldn't impose morality on somebody else. I want to call you to realize we impose morality on others every day. And that's a good thing for us all. And when it comes to evil, it's right for us to oppose it, to wisely, graciously, firmly, humbly, boldly, and compassionately oppose it. So to say you're pro-choice begs the question, pro-choice about what? Whether you have Mexican or Chinese food, where you live, what kind of car you drive, of course you're pro-choice, but you are not pro-choice about rape. You are not pro-choice about burglary. You're not pro-choice about kidnapping. So are you pro-choice about killing children? This is what I didn't realize for so long. I realized when I came face to face with God's word that moral or political neutrality here is not an option, which led me to realize that Christians who have done nothing about abortion stand under the judgment of God. And I have been the chief of sinners on this one. And God brought me to realize in a way that I pray we will all realize that there is a battle raging in our culture and in cultures around the world. And if I, if you, if we sit idly by while millions of people, individuals, people in the image of God around us are dismembered and destroyed, then we are directly avoiding God's command to speak and to work on behalf of the weak, the oppressed, and the innocent among us. Randy Alcorn put it best, to endorse or even to be neutral about killing innocent children created in God's image is unthinkable in the scriptures, was unthinkable to Christians in church history, and should be unthinkable to Christians today. God is the judge of sin and sinners. But thankfully, that is not all. Ladies and gentlemen, God is also the savior of sinners. He's the judge. He hates abortion. He's the savior. He loves sinners. So let me encourage you. Please hear this. To anyone, everyone who has aborted a child, supported abortion, encouraged abortion, performed abortion, permitted abortion, or done nothing about abortion, know this. So hear this, feel this, lodge this deep within your mind and your soul. God forgives entirely. Entirely. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. To every woman in this gathering who has had an abortion, please hear this. Christ has paid the price for your abortion. He's endured the penalty for your abortion. God forgives entirely. He heals deeply. God does not desire you to live your life in pain and regret, but in peace and in joy. Yes, yes, to hate the sin of your past. That's a good thing in every area of our lives. The pain of sin from the past is often a powerful deterrent to sin in the future for all of us. But that pain should not, cannot rob you of the peace that God has designed for you in the present. Remember what Jesus said to a woman who had lived in a moral lifestyle. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He heals deeply. He restores completely. Hear Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Believe this. In Christ, you are not guilty anymore. There is no condemnation for you. You do not walk around with a scarlet A on your chest. You are forgiven. God does not look at you and see the guilt of abortion. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ. 
This is true if you've had one abortion or five abortions. If you've medically performed thousands of abortions or legally permitted millions of abortions. We're like the thief on a cross. Today in paradise. Not to dwell on past sin, but to enjoy permanent mercy. God forgives entirely. He heals deeply. He restores completely. And he redeems fully. We've seen this already, but hear it again. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things, all, that's a big three-letter word there. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God will turn evil into good. I know people, women and others, who are ministering to others out of the pain of past abortion and the pleasure of pleasant present grace to serve other women, to oppose abortion. This is where I want us to see abortion and the church. And out of all that we've seen, I hope it's clear that moral neutrality is a myth when it comes to this issue. Ephesians 5.11, we must not only avoid works of darkness, we must act against them. So Christian, what does this mean for your life, for your family? I want to call you to act in these ways based on what we've seen in the word. First, to look around and learn the facts of abortion, uh, facts about abortion, to see the pictures of abortion. So I've not shown pictures here tonight, but I believe we need to know, we need to see, we need to feel the horror of abortion. Did Think about it this way. Did people need to hide from images and concentration camps in Nazi Germany because it was just too painful for them to watch? No, they need to see it. So we don't need to hide from images. We need to feel the weight of an unborn child's humanity to realize the horror of what's happening in medical clinics all across our culture every day. To learn, to see, and to listen to the victims of abortion, to walk with one another in our churches in such closeness that brothers and sisters find in you an open ear to talk about what is often hidden below the surface. One estimate is that 95% of people in the church who've lost a child to abortion have never really come to terms with it. I don't know how you measure a statistic like that, but if it's anywhere near true, that makes me very concerned. Pastorally, I'm assuming there are a number of people hearing in this gathering tonight who have never told a single person they've had an abortion and they're suffering in silence. So Christians, look around, listen. Brother, sister, step forward and share your burdens from the past with brothers and our sisters. Those burdens are not intended to be carried alone. And then if either now or at any point in the future, even begin to contemplate abortion, share your struggles in the present with brothers and sisters. Step forward and listen to wise, loving, tender, truthful, biblical counsel. And then to all of us, speak up before God in prayer. This is a battle that is intense in our culture and in the church. It necessitates prayer and fasting. Speak up before the government, particularly if you're in a country where you have a say in democratic processes. Use your voice. Speak up and finally reach out through giving to pro-life causes and ministries, through serving unwedded underage mothers, through volunteering at pregnancy centers, through supporting abortion alternatives, through adopting unwanted children. Show a watching culture that sees children as unwanted liability. Show that children are wanted and loved by God. I'll close this section with the story of a little girl who was born in a country where girls are not popular. Her mom, though, decided not to have an abortion. She took that newborn little girl, wrapped her in a light blue cloth, placed her in a brown paper box, and in the middle of the night, laid her in front of an orphanage. Found the next morning, search made for the mother to no avail. But praise God, this little girl lived. And every time I come home and walk into my house, this little girl runs up into me, jumps in my arms, and screams, Daddy's home. And she helps me cook omelets and make smoothies. And I praise God that she wasn't aborted. That she was ultimately cared for by the father to the fatherless and the defender of the weak, the defender even of the unborn. This gospel has everything to do with abortion. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical 
www.thepodcastmaker.net.